I'm sitting here with Lobo. Lobo, uh, you mind you mind giving a formal introduction of who you are and what you do, even probably where we're at? Yeah, for sure, for sure, man. So so we're in the land of the Tillamook, Kalapuya, Chinook, right? Uh, formerly known as that, now called Oregon, Portland, right? Uh, so I'm here with my homie Daz Loon. My name is Lobo. And I'm the captain of the Hillsborough Brown Berets. All power to the people, man. Captain of the Hillsborough Brown Berets. Yes, sir. All right, so uh, can I ask you, what what are the Brown Berets? Like, from the historical point, from the very start, how, how did it start? What is it about? Yeah. So, basically, when you see... Um, Brown people wearing the brown beret, don't matter the patch or the symbol, but when you see brown people wearing the brown beret, think of militant Mexican. That's the best way I can describe a brown beret is a militant Mexican, right? I mean, we may not be Mexicans, some of us may be, you know, Mexican-American, whatever, but that's the best way to describe a brown beret. Basically, we are the equivalent to what our Black Black Panther comrades are to black people here in the United Snakes, we are the equivalent to brown people, right? Uh, so we're militants. So our up- our upbringing, our foundation, our birth was back in the 60s. I want to say it was 66 or 67. You had the um, Young Chicanos for Community uh, form, and basically it was a bunch of brown youth that were formed in East L.A. to address police brutality, mass poverty, all that stuff, right? Um, And then they decided to go with the name Brown Berets. During the 60s, the beret was actually a symbol. Like, if people look at old 60s culture, there was something called the beatniks, right? Where they would, like, sing, rap, and they would do, like, the stand-up jazz, right? And they usually had, like, a bassist, right? And they would snap their fingers. And it was usually like a really cool hit political point. And so they always wore the beret. And so since they were the radicals, right, and they wore the berets, we had other comrades wear berets too. We had uh, the militant Puerto Ricans, our brothers, the Young Lords. I believe theirs were purple, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then we had, of course, our Black Panther brothers and sisters. Theirs was black, right? So then the brown berets... They got together and decided, well, let's represent something that's for us, right? So they decided on a beret that was brown, hence the name Brown Berets, right? So that was in the 60s. Uh, The 70s came along, and you had uh, militant actions like the the taking of Catalina, Santa Catalina Island off the coast of L.A. I want to say a couple hundred berets stormed it, took it over, kicked out all the locals and said, now we're taking this back from Mexico. Um, I recently learned of Tierra Amaria in New Mexico, where Daz and I used to live. Um, Chavez County, if I'm not mistaken, near Las Vegas, if I'm not mistaken, where Reyes Lopez Tijarina, who is known in the movement as El Tigre, went with a bunch of brown berets and they stormed the courthouse with guns, talking about, you have land grants, we're going to give this back to the brown and to the indigenous. So those are just some examples of some of the actions that Brown Berets do. So that's who we are. We're militant people that try to push for la raza. La raza is the brown Spanish, the brown indigenous, 
the brown people of the Americas, North and South, right? Because as we know, there's quote-unquote Mexicans who kind of generalize everybody all over the place. They're here. They're all over the place. Blue collar, white collar, they're all over the place. So we are the vanguard of La Raza, right? And the cool thing about Brown Berets is we understand things like intersectionalism, right? Like police brutality, right? If I'm, hot, if I'm walking down the street with my homie Daz, nine times out of ten, we're going to get stopped by the cops. If he's not killed by the cops, they're probably going to call ICE on me, and that's just a matter of fact. It sucks to say that, but you, you have to understand that with intersectionality, we experience a lot of the same things, right? And then so we started thinking about how we can form different movements, how we could come together, and how we can broaden this revolution, right? And so that's where we're at to this day. Brown Braves have existed. They've always existed. They may have fallen out of popular culture, but I think in 2016, with the election of a dictator that we all know we had, I think it started bringing people to light, like the Brown Braves, like AIM, right, American Indian Movement. They've always been around, but it started bringing people to light. And so yeah. now we're here. Especially out here. Everything that you said is definitely concurrent to the state of the world out here. I mean, we, we need a certain amount of unity to build the equity that helps us get educated politically, but in our own domesticated lives as well, to be able to advance. In the same way that other, other cultures, other neighborhoods, other classes have the privilege of doing because of inheritance, but because of so many things that are systematically oppressive to certain people. And both of us come from New Mexico. And we're living in one of the like most predominantly white states in America. And uh, I, I don't know what your choice was on moving here, but mine was uh, believing and thinking that like liberalism was a help or some kind of like safe space or some shit like that. And this was for me about 10 years ago. And I just knew it was safer for me than my atmosphere out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where, you know, there was just so much gang activity that I willingly was down to participate in because it was the culture. But what was what was your idea on moving here? And uh, when did you move here? And how did how did your chapter start today? So <clears throat> it's interesting because being born and raised in El Paso. It was the same thing like Albuquerque, except El Paso, you had a bunch of Mexicans, you had a bunch of Mexican-Americans, which I call Chicanos. It was the same thing at Albuquerque, except you not only did you have that, you also had a few brothers, and then not only did you have that, you also had a lot of natives, right? You had a lot of a large native population. And so it was, man, you're, you're 100% right. I remember going to the war zone, and they called it the war zone for a reason. Central Louisiana, you, I mean, yeah. you, people yeah. were getting shot daily. It was just a hardcore gang scene. And it was an interesting thing what brought me out here. I, I, I hated to make the move. I did not want to make the move, right? But what brought me out here was actually my children, right? I followed my children. Yeah. Uh, my children came out as a result of the divorce, and I was like, man, I'm going to Oregon. I didn't really know that Oregon had changed. What your perception of Oregon is, is it's white, it's a coastal state. And being from 
the Southwest. I was like, man, I don't even like seafood in it. Oh, hell no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> but then I started doing research on what Portland was about 10 years ago when I made the move back, right? Like, yeah, it was ultra liberal, you know, they even had riots back then. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So then I was like, well, damn. So it's super democratic. It's the blue state. So I was like, oh, okay. So maybe it's not that bad, right? And then I come to Northeast Portland and I start doing my research. And I'm like, well, but I, from the research that I'm, that I'm given, I understand this is a predominantly African-American neighborhood. So why do I see all these white people? But yet I see a Black Lives Matter flag, right? Why do yeah. I see all these taco trucks? But yet they don't call them burritos. They call them wraps. And they're not even brown people manning it. They're white. So then, even though I didn't want to move here, and I came, and I was like, oh, it'll be okay, I was hit with this interesting dilemma of this, like, neoliberalism where they'll smile at you, but yet their racism is kind of tucked in, right? Whereas, you know, you go into Texas or other places like that, and it's just up front. So that kind of took me by surprise. The way the chapter started was there was a brother that I knew from an old Portland chapter who had come from California. And when you understand that culture, like Daz was talking about, when you understand that gang culture, right? For us Chicanos, that threser culture, lowriders, kicking it old school style on weekends or whatever. It, it, it is a culture, but it is a lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. And then what happens is you wake up and you realize it you don't want to hurt your people anymore. You wake up and you're like, nah, I, I want to keep my lifestyle, but how can I use it to better my culture? Straight up, 100%. You know what I'm saying? 100%. Like, I'll get down with some oldies on a Sunday. I hope one of these days I can have me an OG ride with the Zia yeah. symbol on the back windshield throwing up switches. <laughs> but how can I use that and that lifestyle to better the people? Maybe if I have murals talking about the movement on it, because then it'll be a rolling art show, right? So you got to think about that. So in meeting up with his brother, I was like, yeah, okay. So I had done some actions, literally traveling from Oregon to California, and was granted the position of captain because I had earned it going to these actions here in Oregon and California. At that time, it was just me and one brother, man. It was just two little Mexicans, Auden, Hillsboro. Right, yeah, and then we started growing, we started getting numbers, and then 2016 happened. And in 2016, the best thing that that evil motherfucker could have done was be so racist enough to put people to get to the point where people were like, you know what, let's put our beef down, we need to take this motherfucker out. And then all his layers white supremacy, pigs, the military establishment, demilitarization of the police. Ice, all that. How? So what ended up happening for the brown side is then you have revolutionary people like myself that gave it up to the OGs, right? The old brown berets, right? The patch of 67, right? The original cross and the two rifles. And then we started decolonizing. Like, man, nothing against Christians because we do work with some, but I'm not trying to worship a white Jesus that historically came to oppress my people. You know, my last name shouldn't be Villalobos Castillo. That's why they call me Lobo. It should be, you know, Tacuac Pato or some Aztec weird sounding name. 
But a white Spaniard came and said, "Now nah, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. It, it was a form of colonization, right? Mm-hmm. You could see that colonization to this day. You look at Telemundo and they're all white. Yet Cuba is over 80% black and they speak Spanish. But you won't see that on Telemundo. So then you have colorism, colonization, colonialism, it all mixes in, right? So then in 2016, with the unit in Hillsborough growing and more militant Mexicans coming in, we took a vote. And we were like, okay, so we're going to start something fresh. We're going to start something new and even more militant. How can we do this even more? What does that even more look like, right? So then we voted on a new design, which is the patch that we now have. This patch has a symbol to sum it all up. You know, our our Asian brothers and sisters, they believe in the yin and the yang, right? Which is basically, right, negative and positive. Well, that's an old, old, old ancient tradition from the Aztecs and the Mayans, right? And they have that here, right? Our Native American brethren from New Mexico with the Zia, they have the same thing, the four directions, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So then we just redesigned the patch. Okay, that's one way to be even more militant. What's another way? Well, used to be back in the 60s or 70s, the Berets were all about that Second Amendment. So let's bring that back. So now, you know, we try to get concealed handgun licenses for our people. Don't matter if you're undocumented or you're a felon, we're going to try to figure out a way legally to get you something. We understand that you're probably a victim of the system. And as long as you're trying to do good for the movement, oh yeah, you have every right to defend your home, your body, your personal property, and so forth. So that was another element we brought, is advocating for firearms, especially for brown women, right? Get them armed, get them trained, right? A third way was different ways of colonization, but yet still working within people. Within La Raza, within, you know, the Mexican people, to speak generally, we have folks that are brown and Muslim in New Mexico. We have folks that historically are brown and Catholic. Most Mexican people are over 80, 90% Catholic, right? Yeah, yeah. I myself try to follow that indigenous ways, right? We have people that like following the new tribe of Israel methodology. To us, it really didn't matter what religion as long as your main religion was the revolution, right? You could be a Christian, a Catholic, but if you're down with the revolution, we're down with you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You could be a Muslim, you're down with the revolution, we're down with you. Yeah. And then that exploded into like this revolutionary love. Yes. And it even crossed gender. You know what I'm saying? We don't care if you're two brown people and you love each other and you're the same sex. We don't care about that. You both love the revolution, we love you. Come join us. Come get trained up. Come get armed up. Wear that beret, right? You and your partner. Yeah. Especially if you're brown in here, you're already twice a minority, right? You're of the same sex, whether you want to call yourself gay, homosexual, or whatever, lesbian, and then you're brown. You got two strikes against you. Come with us. Link up. Let's get you armed up. Let's get you trained, right? That way you can defend each other, right? That way when these proud boys come by and say something derogatory, make them suffer. Let the ancestors speak through you. Right? I was actually educated by one of my berets. Brother Tesca was like, man, back in the day, our trans two-spirited people were actually governorship. They were actually leadership. Because all the native tribes, all the pueblos would be like, 
they can understand what a man goes through and a woman goes through, give them the leadership possibilities. And that was ancient, that was indigenous. Are we just now talking about this in 2020? Yeah, you're like indigenous people were able to accept trans people, but not only accept them, but hold them up into leadership position because they can understand the, you know, the feeling of both male and female. Exactly. And this was pre uh, colonized homophobia yeah. and exactly all that kind of shit. Homophobia, machismo, all yeah, that. You know, yeah. now that is now that is pre-Columbian stuff was of the earth, and that's what we got to bring it back to, right? Tribe up, defend, honor the earth. That was all that. I, I feel like what happened was with colonization, it led to so much other crap: homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, machismo. You know what I'm saying? You and I could go afterwards and hit up a bar, and we won't have to think about how we go in and go dressed. Yeah. But yet, yeah. let a black woman or a brown woman go into a bar, and they're going to have to think, oh, my skirt's too short. No, nah, I don't want men to hit up on me. No, nah, no, nah, I'm just there for... They should not have to deal with that. Yeah. They should not have to deal with it that. shouldn't that. be the way... Yeah. should not be it like that. shouldn't be that way that, you know, women have to deal with that in general. Like, exactly. I'm so glad that we're getting past that point, but I think it is... Part, partly because we're taking initiative to like govern our own communities and be like that's fuckboy shit that's fucking rude yeah that's somebody's sister that's somebody's mom exactly that, that's your neighbor exactly like step the fuck back and give out the same respect that you want word to, to receive you know? word and it's men and true warriors like you that will do that because the sisters have been doing that and it's just now coming to an end but I think it's up to the men to to take that patriarchy down because it was yeah. male created. So if we created it, if we built these pillars, we can knock it down. Because I don't want my little girls going through that shit. Yeah, I wouldn't want. Up. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't want my neighbor going through that shit. No, 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 no. I want my little girl to look however the hell she wants. And then if somebody do something, she's gonna break their neck and then call me <laughs> to go and pale her out. Like that's how it's gonna have to be. Straight up. Yeah. Yep, and that's part of playing your position to empower your people to secure 100%. themselves, like with self-defense, with uh, economic structure, with education, all of that. It sounds to me like all of it's like incorporated within the power of the movement. It's almost like building a community religion of strength and morale without having to like you know have the actions of being at church every Sunday or some shit like that but exactly exactly it all comes down to self-determination yeah. you know what I'm saying yeah okay self-determination speaks volumes when you can live a certain way provide yourself a certain way protect yourself a certain way defend yourself a certain way because you yourself have all that all those skills yeah it just is so empowering and then hopefully we could get to a point where you have all this empowerment you have all these capabilities, all these skills. Now you get to now you get to share that. You know what I'm saying? Trump's been trying to build a wall for years. That wall's been there. Yeah. Instead of building a wall, build a longer table. Share, bring stuff to the table. A good example of that. Any hood you go to, we had it in Burke. They have it here in Portland. Whether it's in Southeast Gresham, Hillsboro, Woodburn, Salem, you always have a small community, and that small community of Mexicans. They always have their own little mini-marts, their own little tenditas, their own mm. little grocery mm. stores, and that's beautiful. 
But the problem is, if you ever talk to them, yo, do you have six months worth of saved up? No. And then here you go with COVID. And then they have to shut their doors, mm. right? So we're starting to learn the power of the brown dollar. But imagine if we were able to capitalize on that, make it flourish, and then help out other people at the same time, whether it's our black comrades, our Palestinian comrades, our native comrades. That's the point we need to get to. We're getting there. Right, we have the businesses, right? You can go to all these little taco shops or whatever, but have they done what the establishment has done? You look at this COVID nineteen and all these social economic breakdowns, tell me a Walmart's gonna be hurting. Tell me a Target's gonna be hurting. Hell no. Yeah, I guess the major corporations have priority. major corporations got those Marcus, funds, yes. man. They can live off of that. They have contingency plans and so forth. However, what about our small black and brown-owned businesses? Do they have those, you know, options? Do they have those capabilities? No, and if no, why not? How can we get them there? Because we got to keep them up. We got to make sure they survive. We yeah. have to, man. We have to. If not, what'll happen is gentrification fills in, and then all of a sudden, Mario's Taco Shop went to. You know, Jane's Taco Boutique, and now they're calling a burrito a wrap, and they're not even brown. Literally, that's what'll happen, and it's been happening here, actually. It did. It definitely happens here, and it's pretty, yeah. Predominantly white businesses that own the ethnic resources that are not currently being heavily affected, which is still fucking strange, because we talk a lot of the time like we're past a lot of shit. There's just still so many people still struggling because of the economic development that's been introduced to us a long time ago, but has, like, built this initiative built on oppression, built on jailing people, built on uh, cheap labor, low-income, low all kind of shit. So it's definitely, like, dope to hear that you're introducing pathways to be educated on what the reality of that situation is because there's no better way to fight it unless you have like the privilege of being able to have the time to be educated that's right that's right so it's cool that, that like you and the brown birds are making it cool to like you know educate yourselves on how we're developed how we're oppressed so that we can decide not to be victims but be victorious in a world that has made us be as resilient as we can. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And then <clears throat> once you get to that level of knowledge and you start doing that self-reflecting and you start teaching all the brown masses and all that, then slowly you start to realize that maybe we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Maybe we need to re-educate ourselves on things that we were told were bad. You know what I'm saying? Like Cuba. Cuba is a socialistic country. It's black and brown, all Spanish-speaking, mostly Catholic. Sounds a lot like Mexico, right? But a lot of people don't know Cuba was the very first to have the antidote for COVID-19. It's called Alta Inferon 2B. Look it up. And yet we're just now talking about in the news Pfizer coming out with a 95% rate and we're going to be the first. The United States has always got to be the first. No, 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 no. It wasn't the first this time around. It was a small, small, poor, socialistic country named Cuba. And what I love about Cuba as an example is they have something called the Medical Brigade, which are all militant, army-trained doctors and nurses that they will go anywhere in the world for free 
to help. When Ebola hit Africa, they were the first ones there. When uh, smallpox was ravaging certain parts of Europe again in the late 90s when they had their resurgence, they were there. So then how can they afford to do that? You know, and then you start looking at uh, capitalism, right? And Brother Malcolm X said it best when he said, you show me a capitalist, that'll show you a racist. Straight up. Straight up. You know, when you look at capitalism, it's how can I capitalize? And a lot of times, nine times out of ten, it's capitalizing off of black, brown, indigenous people. A lot of times it is. Because I, of things historically set up the way that they are, like on, on the back end of shit. Yeah. You know, it makes you wonder, you know, like, it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder, like, this is supposed to be the land of the free, home of the brave, all that BS, right? Yeah. But it makes you wonder, like, when you look at the Constitution, it literally says Indian savage. It literally has that word in there. When you look at the framers of the Constitution, most of them were cooks, convicts, had slaves. Like, really? I don't really think they had us in mind when they wrote that. So then when you understand that and you understand that a system that was built not with us in mind will never defend us or protect us, then that's when we started getting. We, we have to start building our own shit.